Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I am David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today on the podcast, we got some what we've been watching we want to run through with you. We got some weekly plugs to give you. And then we're going to conclude with an in-depth review of the new David Fincher film, Mank, which is streaming, streaming right now on Netflix. In the after dark, we got some listener questions we're going to go over and talk about Citizen Kane, which we rewatched in preparation for today's episode of the show, just to reflect on how it holds up, what our thoughts are on it today, whether it deserves the title of the best film of all time, all that and more on this week's Slash Filmcast at, uh, and After Dark. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Before we get to any of that, gents, we got to talk about the massive nuclear news that yeah. dropped last week. This is possibly one of the biggest, not, not possibly. It is the one biggest of the, thing. One of the biggest news, film yeah. news stories that has happened certainly since we started doing the podcast, possibly in our lives, which is that last week, HBO Max announced that they would be streaming every single film in uh, the Warner Brothers uh, theatrical slate for one month in the year 2021. Like so, so basically, mm-hmm. the movies will come out in theaters, quote unquote. You know, if theaters are open or if there are theaters uh, that are available to play them, and at the same time that they come out in theaters in 2021, you will be able to stream them on HBO Max for no additional fee to your regular HBO Max streaming fee. Yeah, you can put that huge. in a very odd way. You, yeah. you said for one month, and it's it's a bit confusing the way you phrased it. But yeah, the it idea is- It is for is one month. Yeah. Yeah, they're streaming it, it, them for a month, but the yeah. idea is that the all of the films- The duration is a month. The yes. duration is a month. All it's of the films like, t- that'll be released, uh, 17 films, I believe, is the, yes. is the number. Uh, in 2021, that Warner is slated to release, will also have a day and date- home streaming window of a month on HBO Max. Let's talk about what those movies are, right? So just so 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 no, we nothing, so we nothing all know. important, right? <laughs> so I would say probably the biggest ones, right, that we are all probably really excited about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say are, are Dune is on there. Mhm. Um The Matrix 4, sure wow. on there. The Tom and Jerry remake? Yeah. Tom yes. and Jerry remake in the yes. Heights. Mhm. Uh, and then I'm just going to read through all of them. Here we go. Okay. So the little things, Judas and the Black Messiah, Godzilla versus Kong, huh. the third film in that trilogy, uh, Mortal Kombat, Those Who Wish Me Dead, the, the Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. That's all one film, by the way. Um, <laughs> Space Jam, A New Legacy, The Suicide Squad, which is James Gunn's sequel to Suicide Squad, Reminiscence, Malignant, The Many Saints of Newark, King Richard, and Cry Macho. So those are the 17 films that are coming to HBO Max, you'll be able to stream them day and date on HBO Max when they come out in theaters, if theaters yeah. are playing movies next year. Everything. In these 4K are, these and are... HDR, by the way, like which yes. doesn't exist on HBO Max now. That's coming with Wonder Woman. And I think we were we were still reeling from the fact that Wonder Woman was going to be coming to HBO Max, right? Like on Christmas in good quality, yes. like in the December best quality 25th. we've ever seen. Well, there's, yeah. this, there's a lot of theorizing that that was the canary in the coal mine, that that yeah. was the, yeah. the testing the waters and that it actually resulted in an uptick in HBO Max subscribers this early, even after that announcement, enough that it led to pulling the trigger on on this yeah. announcement, which is... They basically did it, the Kylo Ren more gif, just more, 
More movies. Yeah. All the movies. More streaming, please. Everyone. <laughs> uh, the uh, qu- quoting the Gary Oldman early on the episode. But yeah, 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 you gotta go Oldman fast, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, the the thing that's that's kind of amazing about this is that it's everything, right? It's it's big movies, it's small movies, it's gigantic movies, it's niche movies, it's everything. So uh, let's just. I want to talk about this movie, this, sorry, this uh, big decision in terms of the implications for the movie industry. But first, let's just react as movie fans, guys. What are you <laughs> most excited to see? What, what what are you most psyched about? I mean, the, the Matrix 4, which is a movie I never thought would actually happen, is certainly happening. But yeah, in terms of and what we we'll know. Stream it. Yeah, you know, it's, just, it's to... incredible. You, you won't need to risk getting coronavirus, leaving your house. To watch The Matrix 4. That's a really exciting prospect. It's huge. And also Dune. Like Dune, I feel like, is the movie I was most excited to see this year. And yeah, still excited to see it next year at some point. It is probably Dune is the big one for me, too. Kanata? For sure. Yeah, Dune is is the movie I'm most anticipating, I think, of all. I I, I don't know a movie I'm more excited to see than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's... Yeah, it's not how I would want to see that movie. I don't think you know. I was really very on much your ex- on your eighty inch television. You don't you know yeah. psyched about Dune. I you know I'm I'm not excited about having to keep the volume down for my kids. You know, and the sleeping in the other room. I I want to I want to crank it up. I mean, maybe I'll watch that movie with headphones on or something. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's jarring. It is a shocking. Par- excuse me paradigm shift you know this is this is this, there are moments when you realize oh everything changed in an instant yeah. and mm-hmm. i think that this was slowly gradually you know the the lobster boiling in the water a bit for the entire industry uh and then all of a sudden somebody <laughs> just you know dropped a nuke into the water and the and it started boiling immediately you know <laughs> I, and, I like and we the all way- realized because uh, there was the interview today, right, where Christopher Nolan just put it perfectly best, right? Some of our well, industries, like this is Christopher Nolan saying some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out they were working for the worst streaming service. Like, God damn. Well, so let, 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 let's let's talk about that for a second. But yeah. like, but b- before we get to that, even I, I kind of want to ask you, like, Jeff, what was your reaction? Like mm. beyond wanting to see Dune? Uh, yeah, you have been very uh, bearish on the future of the movie industry. Like you, you, you've talked about it in more fatalistic terms than most people I know. And I, by the way, am a pretty pessimistic human myself. Uh, I mean, you've basically said like people just aren't going to want to go to movies anymore after this. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. even that's that's even too far for me, right? That was that was pre this move is how you were talking about it. Yeah. So now with this kind of, are, are you just like, oh wow, like stick a fork? I mean, actually, I think that's yeah. what you said in our text chat. You're like, stick a fork in it. It's done. The movie industry is dead. Like, what, yeah, what, what I, th- were your I think I think I think I don't think the movie industry is dead. I think theaters are dead, um, and I it makes me sad. I'm not p- pleased by that, but, and I'm especially not pleased because I never took my four-year-old to a movie and yep. I think I'm still going to be able to, right? I'm, I'm still going to be able to. It's not, it, this is not the death knell for that way to consume movies at all, but it's, you know, it's vinyl. 
at this point. It's it's um, it's a niche thing. I think that's going to continue to be a niche thing and beloved by some. Uh, and I think that the divide will be a generational one. I think there will be people like me and us, perhaps, who have fond memories of sitting in the dark with strangers watching movies who will still want to do that and also will be willing and forced to pay a premium for that privilege. And I think that's that's where we're headed. We're headed to a future where movies, basically going to the movies is going to be like going to a play. Mm-hmm. It's going to mm. be expensive and rare and most people you know don't do it. Yeah. I think that's 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 what plays are right there's some i was gonna like, say uh going to a a bowling uh, uh you know alley uh, going bowl yes i was like what is it is, I think it, it's, is, it's, is it roller roller rink and bowling alley you know it's like people oh, still go to those things um but it's not super easy they're not ubiquitous uh it, I, I agree like the they play can be relatively cool. inexpensive like this is more like broadway or a play Right, like it, it is. Yeah, I like think a I think the play analogy thing. is better because yeah, yeah, I think it will be expensive. Better than roller rink, Dave? Are you sure you want to? <laughs> you don't want to double down on roller rink? Well, you know, Jeff, yeah. you just been, we're five minutes in. You're already riding me super hard this podcast, Jeff. So I'm sorry. <laughs> the uh, the no, I I do I do believe the prices will go up and it, and you'll start seeing. I think roller rink is very evocative, Jeff. I'm just put that. Up. Okay, it is very ahead. evocative. Go no, ahead. no, I would love ahead, to Jeff. be. Uh, I would love to be watching a movie. And going 15 yeah. to 20 he, miles per hour, you know, you're going to rent some skates <laughs> to see the movie, you know, the uh, man. You know, okay. Okay. So here, here we go. So they, they made this deal. And when I heard this deal happened, my reaction was, wow, that is so impressive how they were able to put this deal together because you sure. gotta assume <laughs> that Warner brothers, right. Or AT&T, which owns them now is like, understands that there are many moneyed, moneyed interests at stake because typically when you release a movie in the in a movie theater, right, the theatrical window, uh, a lot of actors, a lot of producers, a lot of directors, they t- these days they take a lower upfront fee mm-hmm. in exchange for what are called backend points, right? So if the movie does well as at the box office, they make a lot of money. Yeah, and it's like Robert uh, Downey Jr.'s deal for Marvel is right, you know right. And, he made and a billion dollars because he just took back end mostly. And generally for uh, superhero films like Wonder Woman or whatever, um, the, these movies do do well. It's, you know, they, they're like sure bets. So you got to imagine that when you're basically saying we're not releasing them in movie theaters, right? We're not releasing the movie theaters. We're just going to go straight to streaming that Warner Brothers must have done an amazing job communicating with all these actors and directors, <laughs> making sure they got the buy-in from the producers. Well, it, right? it, it like, is both. It is going to movie theaters, the, the ones like the mythical, right, right, the unicorn right. movie theaters that exist. And then no, 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 no yeah. the, it's overseas. It's yeah, places yeah. like China who have done very well through COVID and have a booming movie industry right now because they're safe and mostly able to go see movies. Right, right at this yeah. moment, Mm-hmm. Movies are opening in China and doing yep. pretty well. Yeah, but yep. I, what Devinger was saying was these these movies will in fact be released in U.S. movie theaters, yes, whichever right. ones, the ones that exist are going to be open. open. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Wh- whichever yeah. ones aren't bankrupt by that point. Both okay. of them. But but at the same time as it's going to be released in movie theaters in the United States, it's they're also giving people very few reasons to actually go out to movie theaters to see them. Right. Right. So it's kind of this poison pill that they're swallowing. So you you think I'm watching I'm watching this deal unfold publicly, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, 
these guys must have spent hundreds, literally hundreds of hours negotiating with all these people and like getting them all to the table, getting them all to agree to it. Because what we saw with Wonder Woman was a fairly orderly process where you actually saw the star Gal Gadot and also uh, the director, Patty Jenkins, tweeted their support. They're like, this is going to be awesome. Check it out. Um, so I'm thinking to myself, oh, they probably did the exact same thing mm-hmm. for all 17 movies coming out in 2021. <laughs> and and um, there was reporting that, by the way, they were also, I think, paid. You know, like they were oh, yes, compensated yes, they were paid for around the um, each each uh, of them, uh, Gal Gadot and uh, Patty Jenkins got around ten million or more than ten million dollars, according to reports of that deal. So they were they were well compensated for this big HBO Max move. And you think again, I'm thinking to myself, man, mm-hmm. oh, it must have taken yeah, so yeah. much time to negotiate all these deals. Oh, oh well, um, another thing about that deal, by the way, theaters are also getting more money for showing Wonder Woman. Like that is also yeah. part of oh, that deal. So, so, so smart, deal. so Perfect. smart. It's so it's so well. Done. I'm like, gee, mm, chef's kiss. You guys are you guys are killing it. I mean, brilliant you're looking into the future. Yeah. Brilliant execution. And then we find out <laughs> today, uh, this morning actually, when it started to come out, that they basically told almost no one about this happening. That many people uh, found out. Uh, oh, here I, I, I'm reading this story at the New York mm-hmm. Times called. Trading box office for streaming, but stars still want their money. It's about this whole, the whole implications of this deal. Um, last week, when Jason Kyler, Warner Media's chief executive, announced that 17 more Warner Brothers movies would each roll out on HBO Max, uh, the talent was handled in a very different manner than it was handled for Wonder Woman. To prevent the news of the 17 movie shift from leaking uh, and to make the move speedily rather than get mired in the expected blowback, Warner Media kept the major agencies and talent management companies in the dark until roughly 90 minutes before issuing a news release. Sure, sure. Even there is some... going to be a mank level movie made about this weekend. <laughs> you know, just Even like this war- entire process. Yeah. Even some Warner Brothers executives had little warning. The surprise the surprise move left agencies on a war footing. Representatives for major Warner Brothers stars like Denzel Washington, Margot Robbie, Will Smith, Keanu Reeves, Hugh Jackman, and Angelina Jolie wanted to know why their clients had been treated in a lesser manner than Gal Gadot. Talk of a Warner Brothers boycott began circula- uh, circulating inside the Directors Guild of America. A partner at one talent agency spent part of the weekend meeting with litigators. Some people started angrily referring to the studio as former brothers, end quote. <laughs> Zing. Oh, man, See, that's why they they're in the him. Writers Guild. That's why they're yeah. in the Writers Guild. <laughs> uh, I, so uh, earlier this year, we've already learned that Warner Brothers laid off like over a thousand people, I think. They are putting all their eggs in the HBO Max basket. They've completely decimated their uh, conventional uh, movie development and marketing arms. And a lot of people are saying, this is it for Warner Brothers when it comes to the blockbuster film, you know, theatrical industry. Like, but, but after, let's they're, not they're, forget, by the way, like I, I think it is worth mentioning. Well, let, me, let me just finish. Yeah. Let me just finish. Yeah. They're, they're positioning this as a temporary move. They're like, yes. hey, 2021 sure is bad. It's going to be weird, you know? So we're giving theaters product while at the same time just temporarily putting them straight to HBO Max. Yeah. Um, of course so they they're say saying that. it's going to be temporary, but a lot of people are saying it's going to be permanent. This is you don't them. Put a genie back in the bottle. Right. This is them <laughs> exiting the movie industry as, as they once knew it. And I think that's why people like Chris Nolan are so upset about it is because uh, 
they had built a really, really filmmaker friendly, formidable distribution sure, company. Sure. Um, famously, I was I was reading about how uh, John Chu, who directed In the Heights, in the Hollywood Reporter, it says he was shell shocked at this HBO Max news, and he famously gave away like Netflix offered him tens of millions of dollars, like enough yep, for him yep. to retire on uh, for Crazy Rich Asians, and he said nope. Not going to do it because Warner Brothers is going to give me the opportunity to release this in theaters. For him to go from that experience to now, uh, they no theaters. Go, they're, no going theaters. To, <laughs> they're going straight to HBO Max and without even telling him, yeah, uh, without telling all these people, uh, it's it's it, they they went from one of the most filmmaker friendly reputations in Hollywood to now uh, people are planning to sue them because but, of how filmmaker unfriendly. But I think that the 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 implication that is sort of subtly being uh, insinuated there is that they are somehow screwing people over for their own benefit. And clearly they are going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars by doing this. I, I mean, I do want to be clear though. Like they, they, they may lose some, but this is definitely like, so a lot of the reports today, including the Hollywood reporter one we've been referring to, which has the great Christopher Nolan quote is talking about the idea of self-dealing. And I think that is and that is a thing like that. That is certainly yes. a potential issue the, because they had control, like they had control of distribution of these movies and they just threw it on their service. They didn't tell anybody that's shitty. But um, the other thing, too, well, is. Well, yeah. Well, let me, let me just thing finish I was my thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Finish the, your thought, Jeff. I have a reaction to it as well. But go the, ahead. You know, we talked about this when, with the Wonder Woman announcement. And, you know, I uh, posited that it, it was it, it was shocking because of how much money they were forced, I think forced, but forced to leave on the table. And Dave, I know you particularly argued, and, and I saw there's an article in the Atlantic that did the math on, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, projected earnings for 20, these 2021 films. And the number of people that need to subscribe to HBO Max is in the tens of millions to even make back one of those movies earnings, let alone 17 of them and the idea that this would somehow juice hbo max to the extent that they would be even in the same ballpark of what they would make releasing theatrically is they're not doing themselves any favors now yes there is this self-dealing side to it and it is i think this is the pulling of the band-aid on a a very difficult painful and uh money losing transition period that I think Warner brothers just decided, well, we're screwed right now. And the only way to do, I, listen, I'm not defending them, but I, I do think that the calculus was, you know, we're being forced in this position. The only way to survive is to double down on streaming. And that's where everything is going. Anyway, may as well do it now when we've got all this inventory that we don't have any way to deal with. And I think it's, you it's already their best see worst Disney. option. Yeah. Yeah. And you already see Disney making comments saying, hey, our entire production uh you know direction at this point is to feed the online service, not to feed theaters. And I th I think you're gonna see the entire industry do this. It, this is the first domino. It's a it's a very painful domino. It's not one I'm pleased to see at all. I, I'm very I, you know, I think it's I'm in mourning a bit. But I do think this is one of those moments where everything's changing and Warner's just the first ones to pull that Band-Aid off. Sure, sure. Um, like, this is what I was trying to say before, too, is that 
Warner Brothers had Christopher Nolan's back when it came to Tenet and his push to really bring that thing out to theaters, really give that movie a traditional release window, right? We're not getting a Blu-ray until when? Is it next week? Or next week. Soon? I'm excited. Yeah. Next week. I'm, I'm excited to finally see that movie. But that was a disaster for them because there is also a global pandemic happening and nobody wants to go to any goddamn movie theaters. It seems like Nolan, Nolan's still kind of voicing that thing. It's like, oh man, Warner Brothers is just killing everything. But it seems like, I don't know if he's fully reckoned with the fact that the movie theaters he loves so much, like just do not exist the same way or cannot be safely attended, at least in the US and for sure a lot of other countries too. So it's 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 a confusing thing. I feel like... Um, I I don't know. I I just feel like I'm more annoyed at Chris Nolan now, too, because he immediately is rallying against them for this, like calling them the worst streaming service when, dude, like they 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 kill people, you know, to put your movies in theater. We don't have the numbers, (laughs) but they probably did. (laughs) They killed Uh, for you, Christopher. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Uh, I I think you guys are making some great points uh, and I have some reaction to it, but why don't we take a quick break and then I have some more thoughts about HBO Max and Warner Brothers. Hey, let me tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. This is something that both my wife and myself have been grateful to have. If there's anything that is interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals... Maybe you want to talk to a licensed professional therapist. It really can help. It really can feel good. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, this is not a crisis line. This is not self-help. This is actual professional counseling that is done securely online. And my wife and I have both taken advantage of this. This is a stressful time. This is a hard time. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of darkness that that she and I have both been dealing with. A lot of uh, real, real stress. And it's nice to have someone that you can talk to on your own time in your own space. You get a, a much wider range of counselors that you can choose from. Cause you're not, you're not tied to people that just happen to be around you. And if you find that the therapeutic match that you made initially is not the right one for you, better help makes it easy and free to change counselors if you need. This is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is also available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit their website, betterhelp.com slash filmcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. And join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So, just for Slash Filmcast listeners, get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash the word filmcast. All right, so uh, I I think actually I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying, which is that um, they didn't have that many great options. We've talked about how HBO Max... The launch of it has basically been a disaster, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, they've spent billions of dollars. They've gained precious few subscribers. Jeff, I think you know you you may already be aware of this, but like what they are going for, what they are, what John Stanky is attempting to accomplish, is what Netflix has accomplished from a stock price perspective. Mm-hmm. That is to say, Netflix has spent many many billions of dollars. Um, they are billions in debt, but 
because they have convinced Wall Street that they are writing the future of entertainment, their stock price is a rocket ship. Like if you graph that yeah. thing over the course of the last 10 years, the, it's going straight, straight, straight up. And, and Wall Street believes in streaming as the future, clearly. I mean, that, that is, there is no doubt about that. And so- So that's what they want. They want that yeah. Wall Street money. They want that Wall Street faith that they also own the future. Um, and I will say that uh, to some degree- I think this is going to make it happen because I think if you're debating which streaming services to subscribe to, should I get Hulu? Should I get Netflix? Should I get HBO Max? This is really going to put HBO Max at the top of your list now, right? Like, yeah. you, are, it's going to be one of the must-have services of 2021. And so to that degree, it is, uh, it is a smart move. However, uh, multiple things can be true at the same time, right? By the let way, me, me, by the way, let, for the first yep. time ever, it really is home box office. Nice. Nailed it, Jeff. <laughs> um, you were waiting all week to say that on the air. Huh? Yeah. Um, I really got to bring back that old 90s intro because I feel yeah. like na, 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 <laughs> so, na, na, so good na, 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 with those lights and everything. Yeah. yeah. So good. I mean, I hate the HBO uh, current bumper because streaming service like the compression just makes mincemeat out of that you know the static and stuff <laughs> their own technology oh, it bothers it. me so much yeah. when i see it yeah. i'm just like Dude, why please pick a better uh you know bit a better opening bumper guys come on you know what's um, so weird is every time i see it every time without fail there's a tiny part of me that just expects the sopranos to start yeah i'm not I, I don't blame you i don't blame you okay but Anyway, going back to the topic at hand, multiple things can be true at the same time, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is that, uh, l- let me list four or five things that can be true at the same time. Uh, the HBO Max launch was a disaster that has given this company precious few options on, uh, about how to proceed, right? Um, you don't see Disney announcing their entire theatrical slate going to um, going to Disney they Plus. Might. They might, but I actually don't think it's going to happen, Jeff, mm-hmm. because or I, really I think well they're going to hold something. I yeah. think they're holding, they're going to hold some things back because they, I mean, first of all, they're one of the few people that was actually making money at the box office before this whole thing went down. But also, uh, I think they've seen what the reaction is and like the value destruction, the relationship destruction that has occurred here. Uh, so the second thing that can be true is uh, they didn't have to. They didn't have to do it this way. They didn't have to roll it out in the way that they did. They could have done a much better job. They could have been more communicative with filmmakers. Um, they could have. Here's a here's a thought. They could have not promised all movies through 2021. Right. They could have said <laughs> the first quarter, the first half. Sure. sure. Um, but to your, not, to your not a splashy of an announcement. But yes. I mean, who knows? Maybe in the second half of 2021, the vaccine is going to start to get out. Movie theaters start reopening. But and there's then nothing to stop kind of, them from changing their mind halfway through 2021. It's a pretty you, amazing. You really, you really yeah. think that people aren't going to be pissed if they subscribe to HBO Max at $15 per month and then HBO changes the plan? That's I, a well, other set of what, I don't think that's yeah. what stops yeah. them from canceling their subscription? I, I mean, Jeff, it, that, that makes no sense because as you just said, the whole point is to drive people to HBO Max. So, like, yeah. they're betting on HBO Max. Uh, they, they're not going to risk angering all the people that they just made this announcement to who like, this is going to drive their subscription decision. So my point being, they didn't mm-hmm. have to do it this way. Yeah, I know yeah, you yeah. are, you seem dead set on defending them, Jeff, but I'm saying they I'm not defending done anybody in a better way. They I'm not defending anybody. I'm just saying that <laughs> I, I don't think they've closed options to themselves at this they, point. They can't they, lie. 
Like they can, abso- they they can they absolutely come out. I think they, they totally have. They could absolutely come out tomorrow and be like, "Hey, we talked to a bunch of filmmakers, and uh, they don't want to do this, and we we're deciding to have larger theatrical windows." They could. Uh, there's nothing stopping them from fucking re- restructuring that idea. Uh, I, I'm not saying they should. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying that you know, just because they said, "Hey, we're going to do this for a year," doesn't mean they're going to do it for a year. I think they will, and I think actually, I think. I, I think not only will they that I think this is a temporary blip of being everybody being pissed off and that by the end of 2021, we're going to be talking about how, well, it was crazy how we thought that was going to be a big deal. And now all the studios are doing it and it's just the norm. But but the difference is I don't after next year, I don't think you're going to have those 100 million dollar plus movies uh, quite often doing this. Right. Like we these blockbusters, things like Dune and uh, and The Matrix Four, right? Those are movies that are invested for the potential billion dollar return that we talked about the last time, and that that will never exist in streaming, not in the same way. So that means either the movies get cheaper, you know, or the movies get smaller because the screens get smaller. Um, it it yeah. just seems like there's yeah, also that, big that's questions the, like there's also big mm-hmm. questions like what's going to happen with uh, with Dune, like theoretically. I think this film only covers like one of the book or the first half of the book or something, you know, sure. like yeah. it's, it, what's, is there going to be a sequel? How are they going to even judge? How are they, how are they going to even judge whether to make a sequel? Um, so, so well, I'm, I'm going to sure quote this article. data on who watches what, you know, just like Netflix yes. does. Yes. I, I'm aware of the data. Um, according to <laughs> the Hollywood reporter. Why, why is that a dumb point to make? You just said, uh, how will they know? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that it's going to be, uh, all right, I, I can't get into the details right now, but suffice to say, like, it is not as cl- the data that they have is not going to mm-hmm. be as clear as a billion dollars at the box office. Yeah, yeah. So, I think it's going to be harder to justify and like, hey, maybe Dune should be like a multi-episode streaming thing. I don't know, but even then, like, they're not they're not going to spend Dune money for that, right? They're not going to spend the same amount of money as they did for the Dune movie. So well, that's, that's the other thing that I me. think is going to happen. Uh, maybe not in the short term, but in the medium term. There's no reason that anything needs to be 90 to 120 minutes, right? That, that is an arbitrary form factor that is dictated by screening times at movie theaters, right? That that evolved because you need to get people into a thing and out of a thing and feed them popcorn and all those things. I There's a potential that media as a concept can be much more amorphous than it ever has before. What, a, what, a, what is a movie? What is a TV show? It, are the, is the Marvel universe a TV show? You know, is the, you know, are all these one shot movies that are interconnected and have sequels is, are they movies? Are they TV show? I think all of that stuff can start of yeah. stop being so set in stone. And because when it's being streamed, maybe you have something, you have the next, I'm saying Marvel just because I like that, but w- whatever it is, you have the next Matrix, you have the next thing that comes out that's you know 20 minutes, and then you have one that's 40 minutes, and then you have who? It doesn't matter, right? Because it's all content, and I think that's kind of an interesting future. I, um, I, you're you're probably right, and we're already starting to see that, by the way, in just like the the wild episode length differences and things like The Mandalorian, even the uh, the small act series of movies I've been talking about, like one one of them, Lovers Rock, is 70 minutes. You know, is that right. is that a TV episode or is that a movie? I don't know. But uh, this is a, like a longer and broader discussion. I think there is some value to the like contained 90 to two hour experience um, because that you can tell a very focused story in that. But 
yeah, it, it's going to change. And we've seen what happens with Netflix, by the way, when filmmakers and creators do not have those limits and you get the the TV shows that are way too long or the movies that are super bloated. Like, it, it, yeah, There's I don't also know the what's going to happen. Though. You also see like people like directors like sure. Quentin Tarantino bringing The Hateful Eight to Netflix as a miniseries. Like, yeah. oversaw and approved breaking up The Hateful Eight, his film, into a miniseries, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's also interesting. I think you're right, Jeff, that there might be more experimentation on the front. I do want to mention uh, this piece from this Hollywood Reporter piece about uh, about Christopher Nolan and, and how uh, Warner Brothers has kind of botched this a little bit. Um, talking about Disney, right? And sources say Warner Media insiders have been hoping Disney will follow its lead and shift its slate to streaming. But Disney, which had $7 billion grossing movies last year, isn't about to do that. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's moving some films to streaming as it did with Hamilton and Artemis Fowl, likely Cruella and more. But an agent notes that the way Disney has handled the shift stands in stark contrast to what Warner's has done. They didn't do a unilateral thing, he says, adding that studio executives made preemptive calls to talent and the reps that helps smooth the process. End quote. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think the the bigger picture question I have is whether or not Warner Brothers is still going to be in the movie industry after this, in, in especially in in the conventional like making these big swings, like the Harry Potters and the Dunes um, and the Suicide Squads. Like in five years, is Warner Brothers going to be doing that? And I think uh, unless they work really hard to smooth over some of these relationships it's going to be really tough for them to to be in a position to do that. So uh, so I think a lot of what you guys said is right. Like, this is the future. But I also think they probably didn't handle this as well as they could have. And it's made a lot of people pissed. And some people are going to sue. Um, Legendary has, I think, uh, started to potentially make moves that they're going to sue because they financed 75% of the cost of Dune. And also, Jeff, to the point that you made earlier about like self-dealing and and like people have accused them of self-dealing and you were saying like this is not necessarily accurate or this is not fair um I didn't say netflix that. okay all right well uh i said the opposite of that i said that's that is i agreed with devendra that is certainly a factor okay okay well uh apologies for mischaracterizing them but in any case they offered um netflix was offered offered 225 million dollars for godzilla versus kong mm-hmm um, which was supposed to release this March, this past March. I, I can't even recall that. Um, but it moved from March to November to, to May of 2021. And uh, Legendary financed 75% of the movie, and Warner Brothers had the power to block the sale, and they did block the sale. So then the question is, well, when they pay them back-end points, are they going to pay them the same as they would have made from Netflix, Right. And also, uh, what about all the movies that didn't even get a chance to get bid on by Netflix, right? Like, ideally, you want to determine whether these movies would have, like, fair market value uh, in terms of what your, uh, what your offer of back-end points is for them. And uh, many movies didn't get that chance to even get an offer from Netflix. So, yeah. and, basically, and to, a lot of people are pissed. To give an even, even broader context, you know, I, I happen to be a member of the Screen Actors Guild, right? I am the smallest of fishes, um, not even a, a blip on the blippiest of radars, but it it affects me and every single member of the Screen Actors Guild, not just the Gal Gadot and, and, you know, Brad Pitt's of the world. It's every single person down the line because every union, and by the way, SAG has done a terrible job 
of adapting to this in the last 10 years. Um, every guild now has to reckon with what is new media. It's still called new media, I think. Uh, at least it was, you know, several like years ago. Like your webisodes and your Yes, you know, and all of things, that has yeah. been so poorly negotiated and the contracts of all that stuff is is so badly drawn in all these union contracts. You know, what happens when everything falls into that category? There aren't, you know, these movies aren't getting theatrical. I mean, they are, but it's not in, in the same in the same paradigm at all. And now you have all of these guilds flat-footed to try to negotiate the same kinds of deals that they've had for a hundred years, you know, but in a completely new context, it's, it's really depressing to see how poorly SAG has done, uh, like I said, over the last decade to try to get any kind of footing there. And I, I mean, I don't know what the director's guild or the writer's guild are, are like, but for my guild, it's, it's pretty depressing. And I don't, I don't know what the future holds for that. I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to get screwed not just the above the line people but a lot of people down the line are you know it's wildly different usage rates and residual rates and all of those things change in an instant and all of a sudden it's like well what what does all that even mean now yeah so a lot of change to come uh and i i'm curious you know jeff the one scenario i could see them changing their tune on this whole thing is if they're legally forced to do so. Right. Um, yeah. Like if legendary sues them or if some big director sues them, uh, it's possible they might have to, you know, run away with their tail tucked behind between their legs and say like, okay, um, psych, you know, like we didn't <laughs> yeah. to say. Um, but the later they, the later they wait for that to happen, I think the more angry consumers are going to be who signed up for this. Well, um, that's the question I want to ask you guys is, you know, it's all well and good for us to talk inside baseball, but like from the end users perspective, from the, the film fan and you in particular, what do you feel about this? I mean, obviously we're all sad to lose film going experiences, but are you, is there an upside here? What do you, what do you look at as far as what it does to movies going forward, how you consume movies going forward? You know, what do you, what is your crystal ball tell you guys? Yeah. I mean, for me, like I certainly celebrated a little because like, yeah, who doesn't want to watch the matrix four in their living room. Right. But then, yeah, then I thought, like, man, I well, don't. Well, a lot watch. of cinephiles, I would argue, right? A lot of, a lot of cinephiles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I want, I, I, it's been nearly a year since I've been to theater and since I think most of us have been to theaters, and it sucks. I miss it. I, I want that back so much. And like we talked about before, like, I, w- I would take all the bad stuff just to like have that reality back. Um, I am thinking it's more, I, I'm leaning more positive towards this just because I feel like this is really going to be something that's, they're going to lean on this for the next year. And once like the dust settles and people feel safe again, that may take several years and maybe some theater chains can stick around. Like maybe we can have some resurgence of the theatrical experience. I'm hoping that's the case. But the first thing this made me think is, man, I really got to just like accelerate my plans to create a little home movie theater, you know, in my basement because that's what I've wanted to do for a while. Um, So that's my thinking. And I think for a lot of people, yeah, it's good news. Everybody wants to watch their movies at home. I know a lot of people who just like, well, in New York, like they just buy the bootleg of a movie that they sell on the street. Like people would come into restaurants 
and just like open a book bag full of movies that came out last week and uh, you could buy it for five bucks, you know? So I feel like for a lot of people, that compromise experience, I know a lot of folks that have like crappy um, hacked streaming boxes, which is a big thing where you could see a ton of free movies basically torrented to your box, you know, immediately. So for those folks, this is great. But I think for the broader general consumer, HBO Max is still confusing as hell. Like this is the big, big problems. Like they launched this thing. HBO subscribers don't know if they have HBO Max, depending on how you have access to HBO. It's so confusing. Like I think for anybody not tuned into everything happening, like I, I don't have a full understanding of how it all connects in a way. Um, I think that's a big mess. And like my big takeaway from all this, by the way, is it just feels like it's another move of desperation. Like HBO Max have felt like desperation from, uh, from, you know, HBO for so, for so long because they saw what Disney plus was doing and they saw the rise of streaming and they launched this thing. And as somebody in the press, you know, as somebody who my job is to learn what these things are and to understand them and to like preview them, very little of that was possible with HBO max. Like I, I was pinging people. It's like, Hey, so uh, when is this thing launching? What can I watch? What's going on here? And there was very little, like very little prep around that. And I think the whole, like the consumer facing explanations for how do you, you know, use HBO max, how do you get it? And things like that. That was all a mess too. So I don't like, to me, this just feels like of a piece of everything they've been doing with the service. It's probably good, but it's, it's super confusing and super desperate too. So a couple of quick thoughts on that, Devendra. You know, one of the biggest challenges with HBO Max is uh, that they weren't available on Roku and Apple. I'm sorry, um, uh, Fire TV when it launched, um, which are two of the most popular streaming devices in the United States. Um, they are now on Fire TV. Still not uh, on Roku. Still not on Roku. Still not, still not on Roku. I have a feeling that this is going to give them a little bit of leverage because like, at this point, it's like Roku looks bad if you can't get uh, yeah. HBO Max. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because like, if you can't watch your HBO Max and your Roku and see Wonder Woman and these other things, like, I think this is going to give them some leverage in those negotiations. Um, sure, so that's, sure. that's one reason they may have made the move. Um, but here's my reaction, Jeff, is... I think we've already captured our thoughts on like the decline of the movie industry, which before COVID was in what I would describe as a slow decline. Mm-hmm. It, it was not robust, not growing. It was kind of like slowly dying, mm-hmm. but it was, it was dying in a way that we could really, I, I felt like I could really enjoy this thing for at least a good decade or two before, like it really kind of sputtered out. Right. Well, it's mostly That's, dead. Only mostly yeah, dead. Yeah, exactly. I felt like, Hey, this is going to, I'm going to ride this thing all the way uh, into the sunset and it's going to be great. Um, and COVID has dramatically accelerated the rate of that decline. And the reason why I'm spending all this time and a little bit uh, riled up about uh, the, these behind the scenes inside baseball things is because it feels like the way in which this all happened was thoughtless. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers, despite uh, the fact that they have, in my opinion, royally messed up the HBO Max launch and messed up this announcement, that that company has a lot of history. You know, uh, it's been running for uh, many, many decades and uh, helped to create many of the most beloved movies of all time, including movies I love. And we are seeing unprecedented consolidation in the industry. And it just kind of hurts a little bit when you see people making these bold moves and seemingly doing so 
not in a smart way or yeah. not in a savvy way or not in an optimal way because it makes me feel like these custodians of our cinematic history, you know, maybe this is the Aaron Sorkin side of me coming out, <laughs> but it feels like these custodians of our cinematic history are just biffing it, you know? Yeah. And I'm just like, they're just there, empty suits be, chasing there might not be livestock. a studio yeah. left after all this. And, mm-hmm. uh, and for what, and for what to get a few more million HBO max subscribers? Like, was that worth it? Um, at the same time, everything that Chris Nolan, you know, um, everything, I'm sorry, everything that you guys said about what Chris Nolan said is kind of true. It's like, he, he, in some ways is living in the past, you know, they're not building that many more IMAX screens in the country these days. You know, it's right. not like it was going to be a huge, and, and so it's just like, I see it that way too, that this is a big, bold move into the future, but I'm also sad because they didn't necessarily do it in the smartest way. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. kind of how I feel about it. It's weird. It's weird. I, I don't, I'm, I'm very ambivalent, you know, Jeff? I, I can't help but attempt to look at it through my kids' eyes. You know, they're mm-hmm. four and two. They're completely unaware of this. But I really have a hard time imagining they will care at all about movie theaters. Oh, Jeff. right. I think I think that 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 to me is why you know you talk about me being bearish on on theaters. It's not because I'm I'm gleefully you know dancing on the grave of something that I love. It is because I just. It just seems to me that my kids are going to care about AMC precisely as much as they care about Tower Records. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. it's just a thing that my dad liked. Who cares? You know, and I, I really, in that sense, you know, maybe Warner Brothers is, is ahead of the curve or trying to be ahead of the curve in some, in some way. Because I, I do think it is going to be this niche uh, kind of luxury high-end thing that people like us will want. Uh, but for the most part, the the vast majority of people will just, it will die and they it will phase them in absolutely no way. I think people will be just as happy. It'll be, you know, convenience wins the day, right? Nobody is crying. There are a few people that love, that love their vinyl and they love their lossless audio and they love their, you know, all that. So there's these audio files that are super into high-end music and oh you know they collect tubes and you know make sure they get all the old stuff but the vast 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 majority of people will download the crappy mp3 of the latest song and happily pay 99 cents for it because it's easy and i think i think that's honestly the way this is headed well uh i don't necessarily disagree jeff and i think i think there's a lot of truth there and uh you're you're probably right. You're probably right. But here, here, here's it, the, the thing. Same like we're, we've been talking for a while, so I'm not going to go on too long about this. But I do feel like, guys, th- there is when you go somewhere and physically do something. And certainly after this week uh, or this year of the pandemic, it's like we are all hungry to go out and do social things and be with people. And Jeff, I don't I I honestly it is the kids who kind of went back and revived the the big rush of vinyl. You know, it is the younger generation who is trying to seek out the things that were lost to the past um, that have revived so much of media. So, yeah, I don't I don't care about AMC. I don't think the multiplexes as they were like literally just popcorn profit, you know, factories like that's all they were. They just had a lot of screens. I never thought that they cared about the movies. But I do think that experience. Right. That's that's going to stick around because it's not 
at least based on what we know so far. Like I'm hoping like, hey, maybe maybe vaccine in six months, maybe maybe like we can save some of the big screens. And there's always a need for communal experience. Like that's the thing. Like no matter how much you you could just sit in your bedroom and watch whatever on a tablet or on your phone or whatever. There, there's we have a need to experience things together. Like that's something this, we've done I, for thousands of years. You know, I hear this defense. I hear this defense a lot online. You know, especially from film Twitter. I see a lot of film Twitter people saying like, "Oh, everyone is so cooped up. Of course, we're going to want to go out and see movies." And I agree with half that statement. Which is everyone's I cooped think up. That, <laughs> well, everyone. Well, I think everyone's so cooped up they're going to want to go out and do social things. We're going to do just, everything. Yeah. I just don't think that most of those things is going to be going to movies. You know, I just don't think. Uh, I agree with Jeff. You know, I, I I'm like eighty percent on Jeff's side here. That I, it's like, um, this move accelerates, solidifies, cements uh, a lot of the trends we've already seen during COVID, which is an acceleration towards streaming. Um, the disappearance of the theatrical window, but they really are ripping the bandaid. Like, they it, are. you know, yeah. that's what it, it, they, they took it from a slow decline into a tailspin basically. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah. And uh, who knows what other dominoes are going to fall. So it's going to be an interesting time, but here, here's what I'm going to say guys from a slash filmcast perspective. Boy, did 2021 get a lot easier to plan our weekly uh, calendar. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's a quote that I I wish I had I had thought of, but I and sadly read on Twitter at one point early on, uh, and I've said it a number of times. I may have even said it on the show before, so you guys can tell me if I'm repeating myself. But it's a quote that keeps reverberating in my head, and it is uh, it's easier to go into quarantine than it is to come out of it. Yes. Yes. And I think that's really proving true. And I think that these, you know, it's only been eight slash nine months of our lives and it'll, it'll be over a year. But even if the, the vaccines change the world, quote unquote, back, I think behavior on a global scale has been changed. And I, I do think it's going to be harder to recapture the life that we all had than than just you know an absence of fear of covid yep i i 100 agree we're, we're we are basically reconsidering everything we used to do yeah. right like mm-hmm. was it important to actually physically go into the office right was it important to physically go to movie theaters right yeah. um we're in the process of reconsidering all that right now and we don't know what society's answer is going to be to each of these questions yet um, and it, it likely won't be unified. You know, there might be some pockets where people do go back to work and there might be some pockets where people do go to movie theaters, but we don't know. We don't know. Mm-hmm. So, but the one thing we do know is we're going to be reviewing the matrix four in 2021. <laughs> we, got some, we got some movies coming. <laughs> we got some movies to talk about it's guys. Time to invest in some good earphones. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, don't, don't worry yep. about the rising death count matrix Four people. I am the pie. Yeah. <laughs> I on the prize. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Hope that this conversation for you, listener, captured a lot of the joy, the tension, the fear that comes from this move. It's going to be an exciting year no matter what. Whatever whatever else you could say, they are really going for it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you can't yeah, say that yeah. they didn't try to make this work. In Like, they didn't try something big. Um, I think it was Richard, um, <laughs> Richard Rushfield who said, like, uh, this is not what other secondary Spider-Man character can we make a movie out of? This is, we're betting, <laughs> yeah. we're betting the entire house on this. Yeah. And uh, you got to admire the audacity, no matter how shittily 
the strategy was conceived of and executed. You got to admire the audacity. Uh, and I do. I do admire the audacity. And I'm excited as a viewer and as a podcaster. So look forward to our conversations about the movies. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you're probably feeling a bit stressed and anxious about just everything going on in the world these days. One thing that's been helping me through this is feels. It's premium CBD that's delivered right to your doorstep. It naturally helps to reduce stress and anxiety, uh, helps with sleeplessness. For me, it really helps me when I have trouble sleeping when the news just gets too crazy. It's super easy to take. You just place a few drops under your tongue and you'll feel a difference pretty quickly. And what I like about Feels is that they give you different choices for dosages. So there's room for you to experiment and figure out what works best. They also offer real human support. So, you know, you can actually talk with a real human on the phone to figure out which dosage is best for you. And, uh, you know, one of the best things to use it, it's all natural. There's no high hangover addiction. So you can join the Feels community to get Feels delivered right to your doorstep every month and you'll save money on every order. You can pause or cancel at any time. Now, I'll just mention something quickly from their website. Representations regarding the efficacy and safety of feels have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, it's not intended to diagnose, prevent, or treat any disease. Even without that official label, feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash filmcast, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash filmcast to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash filmcast. Hey, it's Jeff jumping in here to tell you about our sponsor. You know, the holidays are right around the corner. And if you're looking for a great gift, especially this year when we're all social distanced and it's not quite the same as perhaps handing over a sharply wrapped box with a big ribbon and a bow, uh, there are wonderful alternatives, including our sponsor, StoryWorth. Now, I've given StoryWorth to both my parents at this point. StoryWorth is an online service that helps your loved ones share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's this really fun way to engage with your family, especially those you can't see in person. What a perfect gift for our times, right? Every single week, StoryWorth emails your family member different story prompts. These are questions, really interesting questions that you've probably never thought to ask, but that open up really interesting opportunities for your loved one to tell you things that you maybe don't know about them. Questions like, what's a small decision that you made that ended up having a big impact on your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? There's a ton of these questions. And you get an email with your loved one's response every week. You can read them. It's really fun to see what your loved one is writing every single week. I've been, you know, I watched as my mom does hers now. A year ago, I gave it to my dad and I had such a good time uh, reading his responses. And then after a year, StoryWorth compiles all of their stories, everything they've written, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. So you can give it to yourself. You can give it to your loved one. You can give it to other family members that maybe weren't as smart as you and didn't come up with this awesome idea as a gift. So you can give your loved ones the gift of spending time together wherever you live with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash slash filmcast and you'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash and then the word slash filmcast. 
S-L-A-S-H-F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T, you'll get $10 off and free shipping. It's pretty great. Storyworth.com slash slash filmcast. All right, let's get to what we've been watching today. Um, we got a few things we've been watching. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to My Octopus Teacher, which is a movie that Jeff Kanata recommended. Jeff, never say that I don't listen to you or take your advice or respect anything you say. <laughs> wait, because, he's been that? <laughs> I mean, all these people saying I don't do any of those things, just wait, tell what? them they're wrong. Okay? Um, because you recommended My Octopus Teacher last week, and I watched it on Netflix this week, and this movie is magical. Right? Um, it is yes. a part. It's like a cross between a nature film and a memoir, which I had <laughs> yeah. never really seen before. You know, uh, I, I've seen like Adam Burrow do his things and like there's a lot of that kind of thing. But like the way the quality of the footage, the quality of the sound um, and just the power of the narration of this movie. It seems impossible, right? Yeah, it's really, really impressive. Uh, and, you know, a few takeaways from this. First of all, just like I'm, I'm wondering, like, wow, why, did, why haven't I seen more of this kind of thing? And, and I'm probably because it's very hard to make, but it's just like the idea of blending memoir and nature film in such a visceral fashion. I don't think just been... I don't think there are very many crazy people like this guy. <laughs> you know, I think that's <laughs> the truth of it. It's very, it's very possible. Um, but I think what's also great about this is just, and, and you kind of get this feeling of awe and wonder and humility when you watch things like this or planet earth is that like every day there is dramatic life and stakes story, like life and death stories unfolding around you. Right. And that sometimes all you need to do is like, look for them and you'll find them. And that's what this guy did. He found this, this one, he befriended this one creature and, um, and understood that every day it's life was an epic struggle for survival. And, uh, this movie, My Octopus Teacher, brings that to life in very vivid fashion. I'd highly recommend it. So it's on Netflix. Check it out. Um, Devendra, had you seen this? I don't remember if you had mentioned I've not this, seen so. this, but it's actually kind of uh, related to the thing I'll be talking about. So oh, yeah, cool. it, it sounds cool. I also want to mention a movie that I think is right up Jeff Kanata's alley. Um, Ooh, Ooh Turnabout is, is Fair Play. <laughs> <laughs> this is called The Painter and the Thief. Have you heard of this movie, Jeff? I have not. So uh, I'm gonna. Can I tell you the premise of the painter and the thief? Is sure. that okay? Yes. Uh, it's kind of in the. It's kind of in the title, <laughs> but the premise is given away in the first like five minutes of the movie. Basically, there's a Czech artist named Barbara Kisilkova uh, who uh, paints. She's she's an extra, in my opinion, an extraordinary painter. She paints these massive detailed canvases, right? And one day she has this gallery opening and she puts these paintings as a gallery and uh, she's very proud of this work. And all of a sudden these two people come into the gallery, expertly extract the paintings from the frames, like two paintings from their frames. This is a documentary. This is a documentary, right? Okay. Expertly extract these paintings from their frames and leave the scene. And they steal her paintings. And she's like, what the heck? She's very upset about this. And shortly, again, this is all in the first like five, 10 minutes of the film. Uh, shortly after, the, the thief is uh, captured. And she confronts the thief in the courtroom and says, 
hey, I just wanted to meet you. Uh, also, what did you do with my painting, bro? And he was apparently so high, so smashed, uh, so zonked out on meth or whatever the hell he's taking. <laughs> he literally didn't remember. Like he couldn't remember the stealing? what he had, what yeah. he had done. No, he remembered stealing it, but he couldn't remember what happened to the painting afterwards. Wow. And the film, uh, well, what she says after that is, okay, well, you know, you're going to make it up to me by posing for a new painting that I'm going to make. And so he poses for a new painting that she's going to make. And the film chronicles the friendship that they experience after this event in their lives. Mm. And it's about a lot of things. It's about empathy. Uh, it's about understanding people in the totality. It's about how there's two sides to every story. Um, fundamentally, right, it's telling the story of the, this painter and this thief that stole her painting and the unlikely friendship they formed. And and it's tangentially about her quest to kind of retrieve her painting and whether or not she succeeds, I won't say. But uh, it's really about just the, this relationship and how you might be uh, inclined. You might be tempted to, when you see a story like this, to kind of assign a lot of adjectives to the people in the story, right? Um, particularly to the thief. And I think a movie like this encourages you to look past the surface and look deeper at who people really are. So that's the painter and the thief, Jeff. Sounds I think great. It's, it's your kind of thing. You know, it's your kind of thing about yeah. like, and I don't, I'm not saying this in like the dad movie way. I'm saying this like you, you're all about <laughs> empathy. You're all about, right. Um, but this takes place during World War II? <laughs> no, it takes place uh, in the last 10 years. Um, anyway, but, what, what is it streaming? It's on Hulu. On Hulu, right now. Okay, great. It's a it's a neon film. Neon. I'm has excited a, to see it. Neon. Neon is kind of like A24, right? They're kind of one of those companies that, like, if it's a neon film, if it's an A24 film, I'm instantly, yeah, my interest is peaked because they have yeah. Anna they have shown the a, same way, right? They have a track record of having very good taste. So, uh, anyway, the painter and the thief. It's a documentary on Hulu. Um, I think it won an, an award at Sundance. And uh, I think it's uh, it's it's very beautiful in a lot of ways. So that's uh, what I've been watching. Now, I, I do want to mention that I also watched You've Got Mail, and I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> but I'm going to save it for the After Dark because oh, okay. we are running a little bit long right now. Um, so there's going to be some You've Got Mail talk along with Citizen Kane in the After Dark. Two films. <laughs> One is the greatest movie of all time. Uh-huh. The other is Citizen, the other other is Citizen, is Citizen King. King. Yeah. 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 The two know. Very, you know, if you want our most contemporary up to the minute feedback on what what's going on in the world of movies, check out our After Dark where we're talking <laughs> you, about you've, you've got, got mail. mail. One of them is Citizen one of them King. is about a media mogul who's trying to take over the world and is regarded as the greatest movie of all time, and the other is Citizen Kane. <laughs> uh okay. Devinder Hardware, what have you been watching this week? Oh, I've been checking out Tiny Creatures on Netflix, and this kind of reminded me of uh, of my octopus teacher because it's a it's a nature series unlike one I've ever seen before. Um, it's created by Jonathan Jones, who's worked on Planet Earth Two and, uh, and a bunch of things. But the idea is that every episode follows a tiny animal. So, like one of them is like a kangaroo mouse uh, in the in the West, and I believe another is a hamster in like a New York apartment. And uh, they do these things like he shoots like these little adventures of what these animals go on and like the potential dangers and the predators involved. The kick 
is that he shoots these like the all these different landscapes like deserts and forests and uh, New York's uh, sewers. He shot them all in his backyard in the UK during the pandemic. So it's a really what? Yeah, That's it's kind of wild. It's crazy that first of all, all the. It, it, some of the bits do look like sets. Like you can tell like, Oh, this is not what a real sewer would probably look like. Um, but it allows him to get these like crazy shots of these animals just doing things. Like he's basically creating a little like action movie or adventure movie with these animals. Cause like there's like, Oh, Oh, the, the snake is around the corner. And if this was a live thing, you know, they, it wouldn't be so like well staged. It's very staged. Um, and it's, it comes together a bit like, I don't know, mouse hunt or something like, but I really, I really dig it. It looks really cool. The animal shots, um, just, it looks like nothing I've seen before. If you like the footage of animal, you know, of planet earth, but imagine like what, if, what would happen if you took some of those animals and put them in like a semi scripted sequence, which shows off like their potential predators and whatnot. Um, you get something that looks really, really cool. And I like watching it with my daughter too, because she, you know, Kids love animals. They'll watch anything animals. And this is better than like those crappy YouTube collections of funny animal videos because this is like cool filmmaking. You get up close shots of the animals. There's some like there's a bit of danger there, too. I think it's like rated five plus. But um, like she she's digging it. Like she just loves seeing the animals and seeing the like things that they go through. So I recommend taking a look at this. It's great for kids, but also great for anybody who loves animal, I don't know, animal documentaries. But also if you just want to like watch this thing. And just think about how he made it. It is kind of wild. It just looks incredible. So shout out to, yeah, Tiny Creatures on Netflix. Tiny Creatures on Netflix is what Devinger has been watching. All right, Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching? Well, guess what I'm going to say, Dave? <laughs> I don't, I'm going to say, I can't I'm gonna say that I sat down and pulled up the trusty hashtag slash tag again this week. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because I'm the only one that mentions it. Yeah. Uh and found some wonderful suggestions. We use the hashtag slash tag to uh, allow the community to share in recommendations of things. I find it to be an invaluable resource to decide uh, what to watch. My wife and I sit down and oftentimes I'll scroll through the hashtag slash tag and find a wealth of wonderful suggestions from listeners of the show. And I, I, I just love it. I love it, love it, love it. So thank you to all of you that utilize the hashtag, and I will continue mentioning it every week. <laughs> um, so this week, I watched uh, uh, several things, but the, the one that I want to talk about most, the one that, that, that stuck, is a show I'd never heard about before, but I guess it's been around a, a couple of years now. It's on Amazon Prime Streaming, and I'll be honest with you, I looked back uh, through my hashtag slash tag to try to find the exact user that suggested it, and I... It won't go back far enough at this point. So I apologize. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just Twittering wrong. But you know who you are. And I'm grateful to the person that recommended The Goes Wrong Show. Have either of you heard of this? I guess I'm curious if you didn't remember who the person was like, did you did you write this down somewhere? Like, how did you end up watching The Goes Wrong Show if someone well, recommended it to you like a month ago or something? No, I, what happened was, uh, you know, several days ago when I was watching stuff, I searched through and picked out a couple of things and loaded them up and started watching. And this is the one that I liked. Uh, and then I should have written down the name right then, but I didn't. Yeah, I waited until right now. Well, when, let me let me tell you how to use a search engine, Jeff, because I, I searched 
hashtag slash tag goes wrong show. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's why you're the Engadget guy. It was, uh, I believe it was Aaron Dicer. Thank you, Aaron Dicer. Uh, looks oh, like Aaron a, direct, Dicer. a direct thing there. And also, uh, apparently on August 26th, uh, my Yeep 80 also hashtag slash tag goes wrong show. So, hey, shout out to both There you go. Look yeah. at that. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's always nice to have an Engadget person around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I'm, I'm functionally dumb, you know? Um, <laughs> well, this actually was a long time ago, though. That was like... Yeah, November oh, wait, no, 25th. No, no. It was like two weeks ago. Two weeks yeah. ago. Never mind. Okay, go ahead. Anyway... Uh, this is a UK show. I think it's a couple years old now. I think it was 2018 or something like that. It came out. Anyway, uh, you guys have heard me uh, numerous times bring up uh, Noises Off, which is one of my favorite plays. I actually performed in it, did a production mm-hmm. of Noises mm-hmm. Off several years ago, uh, and it was one of the best experiences. I mean, it is a wild show to do, so much fun. And I love the film version. I just think that the play is a work of genius. It's so fun. It's a big, crazy farce uh, where it's split into three acts. The first act, you see them, you know, a, a cast of British actors getting ready to perform this big farce on stage with multiple, you know, a two-story set and all these opening and closing of doors, and it's this big, crazy farce. Uh, and they're getting ready to, to do the play, and they, uh, they you know, are encountering difficulties right before opening night. The second act, the entire stage spins around. You see the back of the stage... And you see all the things going on behind the scenes when they're trying to do the play that is chaotic and and wild and wacky. Uh, and then the third act, they spin the stage back around to the front, and you see basically the worst performance of a thing. Everything goes wrong. Well, the goes wrong show is basically just the third act of Noises Off over and over and over again. It's one act plays. Each episode is a half an hour, one act play. Each episode is a different one act play performed by the same group of actors. They call them amateur (laughs) actors. Uh, And the conceit is that it's like the third act of Noises Off. There's just no context for why everything is going wrong. Whereas in Noises Off, you get all the reasons behind the scenes as to why the things are going crazy. In The Goes Wrong Show, everything goes wrong. They just don't tell you why. You just along for the ride of every prop malfunctioning, every actor messing up. And it is precisely my kind of zany humor. I am such a sucker for this show. I know that a lot of people probably might find it to be a little, um, I don't know, a little goofy, uh, a little uh, uh, broad is the word, perhaps. Uh, it is a lot of slapstick. It is a lot of physical comedy. It is a lot of... Um, Big, broad, goofy ideas, but man, I love it. It's it's like watching a you know a, a zany cartoon or something. And I found myself laughing out loud quite often with uh, the Goes Wrong Show. For example, the the first episode is a um is a is a horror uh, a horror play that they're going to do. They're going to do this like Halloween like haunted mansion type play, and you know every everything goes wrong. The second episode is like this World War II drama. So it's wildly different things, same actors in wildly different parts throughout. Uh, it's not like they forget their lines or anything, but, you know, in the first episode, the, the director comes out at the very beginning. He says, oh, well, we, we, we just did our rehearsal last night and the show is a, is a couple of minutes short. So we decided to increase the length by adding a few extra adjectives. So like 
<laughs> they'll start describing the house and they'll go on for like two minutes of like it's spooky and creepy and weird it's the humor is is kind of kind of goofy but it's so good and there's all kinds of wonderful physical performances of people you know falling and hitting themselves and breaking things and props malfunctioning and falling apart and if any of that sounds even remotely funny to you i think you'll enjoy the goes wrong show on amazon prime streaming because i i i got a big kick out of it all right uh that's the goes wrong show on prime video and that is what we've been watching this week let's get to weekly plugs gents Weekly Plugs is a segment each week where we plug something that we have created or that someone else has created that we're a fan of. So this week for Weekly Plugs, uh, I got uh, a few things I want to plug, actually. First of all, an episode of Culturally Relevant uh, I recorded last week. Okay. Um, As of this recording, over 277,000 people have died of coronavirus in the United States. And it's a toll that is unimaginable. And I think that... Uh, the way we remember it and have mourned these people has been really odd to me compared to how we've mourned other national tragedies. And this guy in Boston, Alex Goldstein, created this account called Faces of COVID uh, in which he remembers people who have passed away from coronavirus, just like one at a time. And uh, I talked with him for my podcast, Culturally Relevant, and uh, even though that sounds like probably the most depressing conversation you could possibly have, uh, talking with a guy whose Twitter account memorializes people uh, who have passed away of COVID, I thought it was a really fascinating conversation, learning about like what this guy had learned during his time doing this and um, and how meaningful it has been to people. So I thought it was a great conversation. Check it out at Culturally Relevant. Speaking of which, I also had a chance to talk to Anish Chaganti who directed Run, uh, which is the movie we reviewed in last week's episode. I don't remember if you guys liked that one. Um, mm. Were you guys a fan of that one? I don't I remember don't, I don't if you guys enjoyed Run or not. Uh, anyway, we talked about Run. That's going to be a future episode of Culturally Relevant. So make sure you subscribe to make sure to, to get that episode as well. And uh, finally, I'll, I'll have more to say about this next week, but I'm going to be doing a watch-along for my personal Patreon page for Tenet. Because it's my most anticipated film of the year. I almost are, are you going to do it for your first away. viewing, by the way? You know, I thought about this a lot, Devendra. That, that um, seems bad. I don't yeah. I don't think so. I think I'm going to have yeah. to watch it and then separately do a watch along yes, where, you know, yes. we kind of type into a chat window and then afterwards do a Zoom chat and we're all going to talk about it. So that's on my personal Patreon page at patreon.com slash Dave Chan. I'll say a little bit more about that next week. That's my weekly plugs. Devendra, how about you? Oh, I just want to throw out a shout out to the Engadget podcast, um, just because I was out last week. So my co-host, Sherlyn Lowe, and uh, one of our writers, um, Jessica Condit, did a great episode about tech tips for dating and breakups and kind of living through a pandemic while also doing all this stuff. And they dive, they dive into some really cool conversations with Dr. Nerdlove himself, uh, who's an advice columnist. And uh, I, I think it's a really, it's worth a listen, especially if you've ever had to deal with any of this stuff. Like they go over some really interesting tips like, uh, do, do you mute or do you block after a breakup? What What is healthier? What do you do? There, there's so many things like it is such a weird thing right now, because if you break up with somebody every day, the algorithms just fetch you. Hey, you remember this great time you were having a month ago? Yeah. You know, like the algorithms oh, are like it's... built to destroy you. So it's a great episode about how to avoid a lot of that. 
So go check it out. It's engadget.com. Just search for Tech Tips for Dating and Breakups uh, and the Engadget Podcast. Is there watch- an episode of the Engadget Podcast about searching on Twitter? <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, I, I, I can help you out, Jeff. I'll, I'll give thanks, you your private thanks, lesson. buddy. I that's why that. that's why hashtags exist by the way like mm. it's solely <laughs> to make searching easier yeah well i thought so but then i put in the hashtag and it only went back so far and i went and, th- and then you put in the title of the movie yeah w- along with yeah. the trick is jeff you got to yeah. put in mm. the title of the movie both, along both with the hashtag I, you've things. already lost me i've lo- you've yeah. lost i, I did the hashtag is that's what i do your weekly plug jeff well I, I thought of I thought of another one that I that I want because everybody else did too. So I'm gonna uh, uh, the the you know we, we were only all one, on yeah. I, we were all on the <laughs> Great American Pop Culture Podcast uh, Quiz Show Podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, spoilers for that. If you have not listened and you do not want to be spoil, spoiled, I'm about to spoil. I can't believe you would humiliate me in this way that you're about to. <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm about to spoil the Great American Pop Culture. Quiz show. Podcast. How dare you? I fucking won. <laughs> <laughs> fucking won. Uh, and uh, and today I recorded the uh, the winners bracket, the next level winners oh, bracket. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm not cool. allowed uh, to say uh, who I was with or what happened, oh. but uh, you know, just I'm just saying if you're you know if you enjoyed that episode of all of us, uh, one of us got to keep going on. Because mm. it was so much better than the other two, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and uh, and so you can you can listen keep keep an eye out for that. I don't know when it's dropping, but probably uh, not 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 for a couple of weeks. All right, uh, my other uh, my other weekly plug is a show that I do every week, and uh, I really don't mention very much on this show. And that is my comedy science podcast called We Have Concerns. Anthony Carboni and I uh, do this show, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. If you've never checked it out. It, it's all about these wonderful, fun science and anthropology and psychology stories that not a lot of people are talking about, but are fascinating to us. And so you learn something and also laugh along the way. We, we make fun of ourselves. We make fun of the story. We make fun of what it might be like if these crazy scientific breakthroughs actually happen. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's it's a very palatable show. It's the kind of show it's that I can very, recommend. It's to a anybody. very palatable show. It's palatable. It's, it's uh, you're not gonna kick it out of bed, basically. Yeah, no, it's so not. It, it won't make you. You, uh, you won't you know. vomit indiscriminately after listening. Because <laughs> you won't be actively nauseated by it. <laughs> tell me, uh, tell us an episode you did recently, Jeff. What's an episode you did recently that you appreciated? Uh, we talked about this last episode that is currently uh, the most recent episode. We talked about. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the three Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics. I'm sure mm. people are familiar with from iRobot and his other fictional work. Uh, there is a new book, a scientist suggesting four additional laws, uh, that should be implemented. And we debate whether those are good. And in the same episode, uh, evidently the universe, uh, glows even without art- the light from stars, uh-huh. Uh, there are scientists that have discovered that if you take away all of the observable light uh, generated by stars in the in the galaxy, there is still observable light. And so there's some theorizing that the galaxy might glow uh, by some means we're just not aware of yet. Uh, so those are the kind of fun science stories. But then, you know, there's jokes. So it's uh, it's very palatable is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's very uh, you know, what another word for that is it's very acceptable. You know, that's what I would yes. describe the podcast as. It is. It's very, it's, it's very acceptable. 
Yes, it's not terrible. Yeah, that's We Have Concerns. That's Jeff's weekly plug. Wehaveconcerns.com. Yep, check it out there. Let me also tell you about our sponsor, Lightstream. Do you want to erase your credit card bill? Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. You can quickly roll balances from multiple credit cards into one single monthly loan payment. You get a low fixed interest rate, and you free up more money in your monthly budget. So you can say goodbye to your credit card bills and take even more control of your money. I am big, big believer in having no debt. If you have debt right now, you got to figure out a way to get rid of it. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates from just 5.95% APR with auto pay, and there are absolutely no fees. That's huge. No fees at all. And just for listeners of the Slash Filmcast, apply now to get an additional interest rate discount to save even more. The only way to get this discount is by going to lightstream.com slash filmcast. That's lightstream.com slash filmcast for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Subject to credit approval, rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash filmcast for more information. All right, let's move on to our review of Mank. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. That was from the trailer for Mank, the newest film... By director David Fincher. It just debuted on Netflix this last week. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. Uh, this is an interesting David Fincher film because mm-hmm. it's pretty unlike a lot of his other movies. I mean, he's made <laughs> other period pieces before. Um, but yeah, uh, it's also interesting because it's written by his father, Jack Fincher, who passed away a few years ago. A few years ago. He passed away in 2003. Yep. That's, uh, I mean, Jeff, you and I might measure time differently. You know, that's how I feel. Well, I I only say that because it seems (laughs) remarkable that a movie that was released in 2020 was written by someone that died 17 years ago. It's pretty crazy, yeah. It is interesting. I think um, he, in interviews, he's talked about how he didn't, uh, he, he like had worked on the film with his dad at intermittent points. And it was only, like he couldn't get the the financing together to make the film. And it was only after he finished Mindhunter with Netflix, they asked him like, what do you want to make next? And he said, I want to make this thing. Um, so yeah, it's interesting sometimes. Like, I think there's a story there. I think I find that incredible and actually kind of beautiful and inspiring. And I honestly wonder 
if there's some sort of meta commentary going on because you know mank is all about getting sure, credit sure. for writing things and i wonder i wonder if there's something there to that i don't know so jeff you were asking for the movie about the making of the making, the of, making the of the movie <laughs> yeah. yes yes it's it's also interesting that this is a movie about right like some people have referred to it as about the authorship of citizen kane because it's a heavily debated topic is who actually wrote Citizen Kane or how much of Citizen Kane were Herman J. Mackowitz and Orson Welles responsible for. Um, but it comes from one of the few auteur directors in Hollywood who largely doesn't write his own movies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, David Fincher, one of the few directors that like, he, he doesn't, most of his movies, he does not write. There's other directors out there that they write all their movies. Um, P.T. Anderson, Ryan Johnson, um, David Venture is kind of in those echelons, but doesn't write his movies. Uh, but this is a movie all about that. So, uh, I, I mean, I think we're all Fincher fans here on the podcast, right? Like, for sure. What, what do we, you know, uh, I, I was just talking about Panic Room last week. We all like that one. Um, Social Network, Seven, uh, Fight Club, Gone Girl. The guy has made what really oeuvre. great entertainment. What'd you say, Jeff? I just said, what an oeuvre. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and obviously has a rep- reputation for being incredibly meticulous with his work um, and being really technically knowledgeable. So I was very excited about this. But the thing that was weird about this movie is uh, the embargo for this movie went up like, I don't know, a month ago, six yeah, weeks ago. Yeah. So people on film Twitter have been writing essays about this movie and talking about it for months and I felt like a little bit burned out on the discourse around <laughs> the, Mank. The Mank mania, as it were. The Mank mania, yeah. as they call it. Yeah. And by the time this this episode rolled around, um, uh, sorry, by, by the time uh, this episode of the podcast and the movie was released. So all that said, Devin, you're curious what your overall thoughts were on this movie, Mank. Yeah, I don't. I I found this movie a little baffling. I'll say I think for at least half of it, or at least the first hour, I was just wondering, like, what is what's going on? What's happening here? Like, who like, who are these people? What's like this is a movie that doesn't really hold your hand when it comes to just introducing notable like actual, you know, Hollywood studio execs and famous stars and things like that. Um, So it is it's it's kind of structured a bit like Citizen Kane. Like, I think after a point, like I realized, oh, I see what you're doing here, David Fincher. And I, I get it. And it is ultimately I, I think it almost feels like of a piece of like once upon a time in Hollywood. And I was getting shades, shades of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's a hangout movie in a way because you're really spending all this time with, uh, with Mankiewicz as he's both as he's trying to, you know, finish the screenplays and Kate, but also flashing back to his own experiences and kind of his life experiences that led to this. Uh, I got a lot of uh, inherent vice in this too. It just feels mm. like a very California hangout movie. But I have to say, it didn't. It did very little for me compared to those movies. Where at least I think those movies are really great explorations of characters and great themes and whatnot. And I, I know what Mank is going for. It just never really connected with me on a visceral level. Um, I love Gary Oldman. I love Amanda Seyfried. Like I, I think this is one of her best roles. And I think as a as a way to like explore Susan Kane, um, and certainly like as a you could tell this this is a labor of love for David Fincher because it feels so unlike any of his uh any of his films. I found it just to be like an interesting thing in that regard too. It is kind of funny because um well we'll talk more about Susan Kane in the after dark of this episode, but you know one of the things that is notable about that movie, right, is the way it uses the camera, the way it kind of moves through things, 
uh, doing it before Panic Room, right? Like going yeah. through signs and going through windows and stuff. <laughs> yes, I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, that's like from Pan- like from Panic we, we've Room. We've come full circle. Um, <laughs> but but in this movie, like it is very much it is standard Fincher style, where it's just like his cameras typically stay still. Like they may pan up and down or left or right, you know. But they don't. He he doesn't really have many tracking shots. So it did feel weird that mm. this is a movie where well un- until yeah. Fight Club and Panic Room, I would argue. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's until a Fight lot Room of camera and... movement in those movies. But yes. yeah, I, I I would agree with you that like many of his shots are stationary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, but anyway. it's funny because this is a movie that evokes so much of his game, like down to the way the dialogue is, which took me a while to get used to because uh, there's a lot to love about classic Hollywood movies, right? The, the beautiful stark black and white photography, you know, the like, the like banter, the bantery scripts that don't feel so realistic anymore. You know, this feels like a movie that, that could have easily come out in the forties as well. But man, like the, um, it is funny that he just didn't like take that extra bit from Citizen Kane, because that's something we'll be talking about when we talk about that movie. It is a very like influential piece of that movie's, um, you know, technical filmmaking. So yeah, well, I'm cu- cu- not sure what to make of this. Basically, yeah, a couple of thoughts on the style and, and quick reaction to what you said, and then I, I definitely want to hear what Jeff has to say about this movie because um, I, I, on some level, I think it might be right up Jeff's alley, but also I don't know. Um, I think that you're the way you talked about the movie we, on this podcast. We have occasionally talked about how we don't know what the movie is yeah, while we're watching yeah. it. Right? Uh, a great recent example would be The Nest. We're watching mm. the nest. We're like 30 minutes in. I'm like, I don't even know what this movie is going to be. Like, is this yeah. going to be a thriller? Is it going to be a drama? Like, I literally have no idea. Is it going to be a romance movie? Like, I literally don't know 30 minutes into the movie. And I felt that way for most of this movie's run. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, I think just like it, it introduces so many interesting ideas that seemingly aren't followed up on or it's like all these subplots, you, a whole cavalcade of historical figures. That it's just like, oh, is it is that person going to become important later? Like, uh, maybe, you know, or is this the only scene we're going to see them in? Like, we, I just c- kept guessing until basically the end of the film. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's, it's a little bit unfocused in the sense that there's a lot of interesting things that uh, it never really coalesces around one thing, in my opinion. Uh, stylistically, the movies are interesting because he kind of goes for this hybrid look, right? Um Another movie this reminded me of, obviously, is Roma, uh, another Netflix movie that was shot in black and white. That movie, I think, was shot uh, in like RE 70 millimeter or something like that. Um, So the images were, or RE 65, it was like crystal clear images. Yeah. Uh, But it, it was digital, but it was black and white. Yeah. This and also, and also goes, like the, the addition of HDR, by the way, like really does something. It, re, it levels up that contrast of black and yeah, white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Totally, totally. It's crazy. This, this movie goes for much more of a hybrid mm-hmm. uh, look because on the one hand, you have the movies in black and white. Um, it ha- uses very similar sound mixing um, and the characters speak in similar cadence to kind of older movies. Uh, the way it's lit is very kind of dreamy and uh, while the movie was shot in digital, they de- they literally degraded the resolution until it looked kind of similar to old school film. This movie and is I'll- Christopher Nolan's nightmare, <laughs> right? He added, uh, yeah. a, a movie he added cigarette that- burns in there too, like just digital. Yes, yeah, he added, added, no like, film, you know, it, it is, it, it is tr- trying to trick you into thinking you're watching film when it was literally created to be streamed <laughs> to your house. Totally, totally. And then on the other hand, uh, he shot it in digital, as I mentioned, so he didn't use film. 
and also presents it in a um what do you call it? Uh, the aspect ratio that was not that wasn't in use back then uh, mm-hmm. for these kinds of movies, and there's all these kind of modern elements to the film. So it, it's kind of this uh, interesting hybrid of the two styles that uh, feels to me like it has its feet planted firmly in both the modern era and in the era in which the film takes place. So it's an interesting uh, look for the movie. But Jeff Kanata, I really want to hear: Did Mank work for you? Well, Dave. I guess you could say that my thoughts about Mank are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Mm. I have to say I'm thankful it's Gary Oldman playing Mankiewicz. (laughs) Who would you cast, excuse me, who would you cast as this iconoclast, a charming American Yank or Brits? (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Nice, nice. You know, interesting story, Jeff. I read an interview with David Fincher and... Uh, as you may know, Gary Oldman is in his 60s, whereas yes. the character he is portraying is supposed to be in his late 30s, early 40s. Yes, this, and, he's uh, literally the same age I am. David Fincher said, uh, basically, what can I say? The best actor w- like gets the part. We could have found a desiccated 43-year-old, but we didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is not a point lost on me that I was watching a movie about a washed up writer, self self described washed up writer that is the same age as me. But, uh, but played by an Academy Award winning actor. Academy Award winning 60 year old. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, and honestly, the reason that I, I, I wrote the limerick that way is not who I would think to play this part. It is a, it is a part that requires charm. And, I don't think of charm when I think of Ooh. Gary Oldman and Ooh, he Jeff, brings come the, on the, the professional, you know, like that. I think what's so, so interesting about his characters, right. You see, he is, he has a seedy sort of charm, right. You never know if you can trust Gary Oldman, but I think in, right. in certain respects that can be charming, but yeah, yeah. Keep going. I do, Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would use that word to describe him personally. <laughs> I think, I, I, I think he's a phenomenal actor and has brought to life some of the most memorable characters in in cinema i i love him but it's it's an interesting side of him that i've never seen he is extremely charming in this movie i adore this movie uh you were right david saying it is up my alley <laughs> this this movie it, it's funny that you davindra that you compared it to two movies i do not care for yeah in uh, i know in uh, yeah um and what I love about it, 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 and part of the reason I'm so fascinated by it being written by uh, by uh, Jack Fincher, is that I think this script is extraordinary, extraordinary. I mean, it's Oscar Wilde. This, it, it's every mm-hmm. single line is a bon mot, right? Every single line is the perfect zinger. It is. Every line could be extracted out and put up on a wall in quotation marks. It's incredible. I mean, there's a sequence where uh, you're walking through MGM with, uh, you know, the head of MGM at the time. And he's like spouting off this stuff. And he says this line that I was like, oh, my God, I got to write that down somewhere. And I had like six or seven. I got to write that downs in this movie. Um, But he says something about like what, what makes the movie industry, the film industry is that um, the, 
the customer is buying a memory, they don't, when they leave the theater, they don't own anything. We still own it. That's the film industry. I was like, wow, that is spectacular. Uh, I'm not doing it justice, like paraphrasing, but the, and the entire movie is, is this like these bon mots after just mm-hmm. like perfectly elucidated thoughts, you know? Right. And you, you have this character in, um, in Mankiewicz who is, you know, at one point, uh, someone says to him, you know, uh, he, he likes you not because of what you write, but how you talk. And what is on display in this movie is he is exquisite at talking. He, <clears throat> I am not, however, my voice is failing me. He is exquisite at talking. He is able to say the perfect thing every moment sometimes it gets him into trouble, right? Sometimes it, it, it turns somebody off. And there's a one point in the movie where he says something to his, uh, I guess, secretary, maybe a demeaning term, but his uh, assistant. Um, and, uh, you know, he says the, the perfect zinger about her husband who's away at war, just as she finds out that he may be in danger. And it's like, he, he chastises himself as being always the smartest guy in the room. And I think it is really difficult to write something as dense as this, where every line is sculpted out of marble, every single, every single piece of dialogue in this movie is like a chestnut, is a gem. And I just reveled in the dialogue. I mean, it's a movie that revels in dialogue. I love, you know, I love, I love theater. I love dialogue heavy stuff. I, I love Aaron Sorkin. This is even not really Aaron Sorkin. It's much more Oscar Wilde, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not trying to, inspire or um or be sort of lofty with language it's being like laser sharp and like a scalpel cutting to the core of every single moment and and using razor sharp wit to dismantle arguments it's oh i just adored it for that for that element alone just the the density of the dialogue how the movie does not pander to the audience at all. I mean, it, there are big, huge moments that you can totally misinterpret or not get, but the movie just relies on you to keep up. It's asking you to keep up. And I absolutely am grateful that I rewatched uh, Citizen Kane before watching this. I think they are companion pieces, and I'm glad we, we decided to do um, the After Dark so I could rewatch Citizen Kane because I hadn't seen it since college. And I'm really actually very excited to talk about it in our After Dark. But I also think it gave me much more insight into the movie, into this movie than I would have had if I had just relied on my memory of Citizen Kane because there's a lot of detail that is specifically referenced in this film. And, it, and honestly, it's not a movie about the making of Citizen Kane. Yeah. It, really, it really isn't. Um, I, I actually expected it to be much more than that. I expected it to be this sort of, you know, delving into the making of that movie. And it really isn't. It's much more a biopic about Mank and his life and the things that, you know, not his whole life, but, you know, a lot of the things that brought him to that moment and his like clashing with these figures, you know, the uh, William Randolph Hearst and, and the, the heads of these studios. And I uh, mean, it is, I just thought it was so entertaining and so fascinating. And if this is a hangout movie, I loved hanging out with these characters. 
Awesome, Jeff. I'm I'm yeah, really glad yeah. that you enjoyed it, dude. Um, I didn't know that you would. Um, I'll say that I uh appreciated the film. I think there's a lot that you uh hit on, Jeff, that I agree with. That there's just a lot of bon mots, a lot of uh great zingers and and things of that nature. Um, and as with all Fincher films, it's gorgeous to look at you know it's just it's an amazing movie to just observe and and see all the detail that's been put into it um at the same time it just struck me as a little bit too unfocused to really land with any emotional impact uh i it's a it's a movie i admire it's a movie i appreciate but it's not one that i felt like wow that really like blew me away uh like i had such a big emotional reaction to it and i think it's largely because it it tries to do a lot um, it's introducing all these characters and int- introducing all these subplots. And at the end, I don't know that they fully cohere. I will also say that I think if you know that Citizen Kane is an extremely well-regarded movie, like that's that's basically all you need to know mm-hmm. going into this. Although but, there, there are some but, direct bits, yeah. Well, I was, that's what I was just going to say. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch Citizen Kane, your appreciation of this film will be much greater, I think, mm-hmm. because... Yeah. Um, so many components, like in particular, the way that, uh, Marion Davies, I like her analog, I guess, is portrayed in Citizen Kane is so important to uh, an, an emotional component of this film that I think if you haven't seen Citizen Kane recently and you don't remember that, then I think this film will be much harder to appreciate. So, uh, in case you're curious, like, can I watch this movie without like knowledge of Citizen Kane? Yes, but it will be greatly enhanced if you have seen Citizen Kane recently. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. Anything else or shall we get into spoilers? Um, Devendra, this is usually the time where you like to give a shout out to the score, which by the way is by Good Trent score. Reznor and Atticus Ross. Yeah, which, you know, uh, Trent Reznor doing like 1940s, it's wild. you know, Bernard, Her- Bernard Herman. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. Old school. Uh, it's pretty wild. Remarkable. Remarkable. So uh, they did a great job. Let me ask you guys, though, did you have any trouble hearing the dialogue? Because I the mix, I get what they were doing, but man, I hate I've always hated listening to the way older movies sound because of those like monotype mixes. And it actually hurt my appreciation of the script because there were times where everybody was talking and it, it felt hard to even comprehend sometimes what was going on. I was very uh, pleased to watch this movie through my noise-canceling earphones. That's kind of how you got to do it, yeah. yeah. I was pleased to watch it with subtitles on, so um, which is how I generally watch movies these days. So uh, I I had no problem with it. But I I did think to myself, I did have the thought, if I wasn't watching this with subtitles on, it would be very challenging to understand. Watching it, like I I was watching on a Sonos Playbase, which is a pretty good speaker, but it was was a little too garbled at times, and I should have just thrown on headphones, but it just felt like a weird audio mix and purposeful right that's what he's going for but yeah. yeah not not great for me all right let's get the spoilers for uh mank starting right now now you're looking for the secret you're trying to see this coming no but you won't find it because of course you're not gonna see this coming you're not really looking i have been puzzling over how it works you don't really want to work it out who's in the box i have been dying to tell you i want to tell you my secret you want to be Let me ask you this question, Jeff. What do you think this movie was ultimately about? I know you love the movie, but like, what kind of was your takeaway? Um, and I, I can I can volunteer something just to get the conversation started to see if you agree with this, okay? But if if I am take away one emotional truth or journey in the film, it's it would be Mank 
who is a washed up writer and who eventually kind of ends his career in relative ostracization and obscurity. Uh, it would be this character of Mank realizing the power of words and his words specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm thinking about what the quote unquote moral is, right? This guy who kind of looks down on Hollywood entertainments, um, realizing the true power they can have through this like fake news episode, you know, and through movies like the wizard of Oz and through the power of his own work. That's kind of my takeaway. What do you think though, Jeff? I think that's a fair takeaway for me. It resonated on, on the level of what it takes to create art. Mm. Like he, it ultimately is, is destroying himself in the making of something, which is, I found pretty compelling, but to me, if there's a thesis statement in this movie, it's the allegory of the monkey grinder right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is teased and then paid off in a beautiful way. The and organ grinder's monkey, I should say. Organ grinder's monkey, yeah. Yeah, yes, pardon me. The organ grinder's monkey. And uh, this idea of being this, this, um, y- you assume that you have autonomy, you assume you have power, you assume you have, you are creating something and you assume you are um, in control of the thing you are creating, or you are um, affecting the world in some way. You you are an autonomous being, and the monkey doesn't realize that it is. It, it thinks it's doing something, and it's just the thing that is there to have things done to it. Right? It is. It, it is. It is a victim of its betters right it's it's master controls it but it is blind to that fact and i think that's ultimately what mank is rebelling against through this entire movie is he is destroying a very good relationship he has with very powerful people because he's realized he's just the monkey right Mm, and i found that to be really powerful and compelling yeah, for sure. That, that uh, is sort of the rosebud of this movie, by the way. It's like, why? Yeah. Why? why right. You know, why make it the, about a Hearst analog, you know? And there, the, 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 the whole Upton Sinclair thing, I think, is a big part of it, too. Like, that that's a random subplot that just doesn't really seem to come out of anywhere. But I think it goes is to... Is that Bill Nye the science that guy, is by Bill the way? Nye. Is. That is Bill Nye it the is science Bill Nye. guy. Yep. Yeah. It's and so also, cool. It's great because, yeah, I was just talking with him a couple weeks ago. It's like, man, this guy is just like an angry environmental radical right now he's so angry about everything so him playing upton sinclair is actually pretty pretty perfect because that is he would essentially be right there with him but that whole thing too about how like just the money and the influence of these rich people can they will celebrate you know defeating a guy who's out there just trying to make life better for normal people and i think it is also that realization too that as much as he scoffs at them and lives you know lives at uh as, as he is still part of that circle, you know, and I feel like he feels a certain responsibility about that as well. And um, I wish the whole thing about fighting for credit, that's something I've seen a lot in the reviews that, that, that seemed like a turning point for this movie that happens like 15 to 10 minutes before the end of the movie. I feel like I, I would have liked a little more meat on that battle. Cause that would have been interesting. Well, uh, a couple of listeners have recommended The Battle Over Citizen Kane, which is a documentary uh, that came out in 1986 that is apparently a much better, uh, covers the topic of the authorship of Citizen Kane in a much better fashion. So mm-hmm. if you I are hungry, you that this, 
this movie doesn't seem to care about being about that. Yeah, yeah I agree. Agreed completely. Agreed completely. It's it's just because it's the thing that people have like talked about for a while, like and yeah. is very famous uh, conflict. It's like, oh, David Fincher's new movie mentions it. Well, you know, the, and they might like talk it up a little bit. But the movie is the Battle Over Citizen Kane. Check that out. Um, if you want to learn more about the the authorship, um, Jeff, hearing you talk about that, uh, do you want to hear my my boom goes dynamite joke for this movie? Do I? Uh, finally, watch the David Fincher film that stars Charles Dance and involves an artist who is just trying to make something great while studio forces were arrayed against him. In fact, the uh, the true authorship of the work in question is eventually disputed. But enough about Alien 3, guys. Well done. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Let's talk you're, about You're Meg. going a little meta there. You're going beyond the movie. The, you're going yes, to like the author. Oh, my. Mm, Devendra, so I'm good. so glad you so recognize good. the brilliance of this. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> in an interview with Vulture, David Fincher said, was talking about the creation of this script. And uh, Mark Harris, I think, was asking him, like, when did this happen? When did the script start getting written? And David Fincher says, quote, I hadn't directed a movie yet. I was just going off to do that once I had gone to Pinewood for two years and had been through a situation where I was at a, a hired gun to make a library title for a multinational, vertically integrated media conglomerate. I had a different view of how writers and directors needed to work, end quote. And he has talked about Alien 3. He's talking about Alien 3 and making it with Fox, by the way, in case you don't know what he's referring to just now. Um, but he has talked about Alien 3 so many times as like one of the worst moments of his career. That basically, you know, he was in his 20s, like his the people didn't trust him to make a movie and they basically like treated him like shit and he like doesn't like the movie. And I, I, I remember someone writing about him like, I, I wonder if this like gave him a chip on his shoulder that never fully healed. And this movie feels almost like a response to that movie, you know, even though. That movie happened decades ago, and I, I know they like he probably wasn't consciously thinking about Alien Three when he was making this, but it does feel like Fincher's one brush with a studio that really screwed him, right? Um, so anyway, it's just interesting to think about uh, when you think about this movie and what its themes are, uh, and that's what came to mind, Jeff, when you were talking about your your thoughts on the moral of this film. So yeah, um, yeah, you're just anyway, a monkey, yeah. you know. Ultimately, the artist is just the monkey. And, you know, you think that you are doing this thing, but ultimately you're not doing anything the, <laughs> you, you know, you are, you're the, you're the sidekick, you're the sideshow and the money people are really what's important. And I think well, that's, yeah, Jeff, you mentioned earlier that great speech that the, I think mayor gives that speech yeah. while they're walking down the hall. Louis and, B. Mayor. Yeah. And he gives this great speech about how that's the one thing about the movies is like, we're selling a memory, but the, the actual thing we create, it still belongs to you. No, it still and belongs to us. It still belongs to us. But then, I, I don't know. I think he says it more artist-centric than that. And no, then, no. He says, he says that, talking about audiences, they walk out of a movie theater and they bought something, but we still own it. Hmm. They paid for it, but they don't own anything other than a memory. We own it. I, well, I, the, the reason I say it like that is because I... Well, I thought when he was saying we, it felt more like we, the artist, and not we, MGM. But that may, maybe that's just how we, you and I perceive the film differently. But I did think it was purposeful that immediately after that, he goes in and cro like cries crocodile tears and yeah. basically uh, takes uh, you know below the line workers' money away from them 
so that they can, I, I believe he uses the money to contribute to the conservative uh, uh, governor, right? Mm-hmm. A candidate, right? And and it felt to me like a um, kind of, uh, there was a kind of ir- irony in, in like oh, how empowered. Dude, yeah, go ahead. The, the, that sequence of introducing LB Mayer in the movie, it starts with him literally kicking the shit out of his own brother. <laughs> <laughs> yep and then it continues it doesn't there's no time jump it continues literally from him physically assaulting someone and and telling him he's gonna like cut his nuts off to then like marching through the hallway telling you know like spouting off about how the industry is and what it means and you know people think it's mgm stands for metro golden mayor but it stands for my good pushing or whatever i can't do the yiddish but the you know my my good family or whatever and like just like not looking back and just marching down the thing right. and people you know saying hi to him and he's he's completely in command and then right into a stage where hundreds of employees are waiting to find out what's going to happen in the great depression to them uh and him saying we got to cut uh things by 50% putting on a good show like giving this heartfelt speech that is clearly clearly um you know uh, a lie and uh, and then them all accepting it, and then him walking off. Like that's how we meet LB Mayer in this movie. It's it's a hell of a character. It's a great, it's a great sequence. It's a great sequence. Yeah. And hopefully you can tell. Even though I didn't love this film, there's still many things I appreciated yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, you know? I think it's it's filled with incredible moments. I just wish it connected better. But yeah, yeah those I, moments I like are great. Um, the relationship between him and Marion Davies. I thought mm-hmm. that was like kind of nice. And yeah. you know, you know what's so weird to me about this movie, guys, is that. It was such a big deal. The Citizen Kane was such a big deal. And what I mean by that is Citizen Kane's main character is not William Randolph Hearst. It's some other dude. It's Charles right, Foster right. Kane. And right. everyone, I guess no, they just It was assumed, lost on no one. <laughs> yeah, but I guess they just, they're just like, it's going to be so widely understood that this is so-and-so that William yeah. Randolph Hearst, in fact, in real life, spent quite a bit of time trying to bury the film. I think, honestly, um, it would be like putting out a big budget highly acclaimed Hollywood movie where everyone knows it's Trump, but they don't call him Trump, right? It, we we all, everyone at that yeah. time was so familiar with Hearst and his personal life and his story and how he influenced the world that there was, it was lost on no one that this was a direct shot at him. True. And I think he, totally he would have been just as vain and just as vindictive as Trump would be in that situation uh, to, you know, make it go away or attempt to. Yeah, it's just it's just wild. I don't know. It's just wild to me that it, it was a like just the fact that people would think it was kind of like this guy was enough to get people super super angry to a to an extent that it would be career threatening. But uh, we'll talk more about that in the after dark. In any case, uh, I think we can wrap it up there, guys. Uh, we all Jeff loved the movie. I liked it, and Devendra was uh, kind of eh on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, more to discuss in the after dark. Uh, but that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the podcast. You can find more episodes of the Slash Filmcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be dis- discussing next week. This episode was edited by Baby Zhang. The theme song was brought to you by adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from YouTuber and filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. And our weekly plugs music comes from Noah Ross. Next week, we are going to be discussing The Sound of Metal, which is streaming right now on Prime Video. Now, uh, this is, you know, when we launched our Patreon at patreon.com slash film podcast, we listed some benefits you would get at different tiers. Uh, but 
I, I, one of the benefits that I, you know, cause, cause I'm, I'm a fan guys of under promising and over delivering, you know what I mean? Like, sure. uh, I, I like to say, we're going to give you this and then we give you more than this. And one of the unspoken, uh, benefits of being part of the Patreon is for the, one of the first times we've done this very rarely, but we're probably going to do it more often in the future. We allowed patrons to vote on which movie we we're going to review next week. And so we put up uh, Martin Eden, Wild Mountain, Sound of Metal, and Freaky. And winning the contest with 151 votes was Sound of Metal, uh, which we're going to be discussing next week in the podcast. I can't wait. Um, So I'm looking forward to it. I've heard it's great. But uh, just one of many little surprise and delights you might get Hmm. as part of the Patreon at patreon.com slash filmpodcast is on occasion we might ask you to vote on uh, which movie you're going to review and on occasion we might uh, take that advice so thank you so much to all of our patrons uh, and we look forward to talking with you next week about Sound of Metal uh, and stay tuned later for the After Dark see you later he watched the